Chapter Three of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The physical structure of the county. Lancashire is a land of mountain and fell, of moor and plain, all in their turn furrowed by beautiful valleys carved by its many rivers. We turn then to ask, in the language of Mr. Ruskin, what sort of chisels and what workmen's hands were used to produce this large piece of precious chasing or embossed work? Some of the oldest rocks in the world, indeed the Alps and the Himalayas are quite young in comparison with them, build the mountains and uplands of the greater part of the Furness area, those in the extreme northwest being partly of volcanic origin. The several divisions of the Carboniferous system, the next in point of age, for the Devonian rocks are missing, account for the most part for the fells and high moorlands of Lancashire below the sands, and for the somewhat featureless regions of the southern coalfield, while the much younger new red sandstone is the bedrock of the long drift-coloured sand-swept coastal plain to the west and south. A glance at a relief map of Lancashire shows that practically all of the rocks east of this coastal plain have been folded, cracked, crumpled and contorted, and denuded to a degree, the folds extending eastward far into Yorkshire. Stand, for example, to take the view in the midst of the industrial area, beside the Peel Tower on the summit of Holcombe Hill, a little north of Bury, on a day when the atmosphere is clear, and sunlight and shadow throw the hills into bold relief. South and east, beyond the green foothills, lies the rolling plain of the southern coalfield. If it is peopled with chimneys, we may at least recall the saying that their smoke denotes human happiness and content for thousands. When her chimneys are smokeless, operative Lancashire is hungry and sad, but turn away from these to the north-east. There ridges of hills seem to sweep away from you like great breakers rolling towards a rising shore. Now walk northwards over Holcombe Moor to the high ground above the famous Pilgrim's Cross, and look towards the west. There the long lines of hills seem to resemble billows advancing towards you. You are on the southern side of one of the great folds that form the rocky framework of Lancashire. There are in the main some five of these anticlines in the county. By far the most important, though probably not the oldest, is the great anticline of the Pennines, along the watershed of which runs, as we have seen, a considerable part of Lancashire's eastern boundary. This great fold represents the main line of the upheaval running roughly north and south, which took place after the close of the Carboniferous period of the geologists. We must not for a moment suppose that it was due to a sudden cataclysm, or that it was produced otherwise than very gradually. It has given us the broad crumpled ridge of the Pennine chain, known as the backbone of England, with a much steeper slope on the west than on the other side. Hence partly the numerous faults near the Lancashire border. This great fold of the Pennines runs, as we have said, north and south, but our relief map shows that a number of minor folds run across Lancashire in a generally east to west direction, or to be more accurate, slightly north of east to south of west, apparently thrusting bold masses of high land westwards over the county. The chief of these are the Rossendale Anticline, over which we were looking a moment ago from the summit of Holcombe Hill, where the millstone grit protruding boldly through the coalfield, gives us the high ground that separates the Burnley coalfield from that round Bury, and is continued westwards in the groups of grit hills, furrowed by river valleys that lie between Blackburn and Bolton. The next in order, proceeding northwards, is the Clitheroe and Skipton anticline, 
which has left on its southern slope the great mass of Pendle, on its northern slope the line of Longridge, while, strange to say, the crown of the great arch, which we should expect to be its highest point, has been eaten away so as to form the beautiful valley of the Ribble, which has again been covered by glacial drift. Beyond is the Sladeburn anticline, along the line of the River Loud, that runs past Chipping. This again may be traced in an east-north-easterly direction towards Malham. Lastly, the Sykes anticline takes the same general direction through the fells of the forest of Bowland towards Settle. What strikes us most forcibly on a casual glance at a relief map of Lancashire is that two main masses appear to be thrust across the county, one to the north and one to the south of the Ribble. Now these great hill masses, which at first sight appear to be pushed out from the Pennine chain, and indeed to form a subsidiary part of that system, constitute, with the Pennines, the main structural features of Lancashire south of the Sands. Westward of these high grounds stretches the flat coastal plain that lying immediately to the north of the opening further south, known as the Cheshire Gap, gave to the Roman roadmakers of the first century and the railway engineers of the 19th their most convenient route to the north. For strike north-westwards from Bolton by Halliwell, and following the wild winding glen of the beautiful Barrow Brook, climb to the Cairn, 1500 feet above the sea, on the summit of Winter Hill, and then cross to the pike above Rivington. You are here at the western extremity of the most southerly of these bold masses of hills, the one which, as we have seen, runs westward from Rossendale. Here the high ground sinks suddenly to the plain. Consequently, the view from these two hills is proverbially extensive. We will disregard Snowdon as outside our present purpose, and content ourselves, if the day is clear, with sweeping the horizon for the beautiful Liverpool Cathedral now in the course of construction on St. James's Mount. Then follow the long flat shore to Southport, where the sea is nearest to us. The Blackpool Tower and the Fleetwood Elevator follow in quick succession, and then, looking right over the sands and low furnace, we may be fortunate enough to distinguish the dark mass of Black Coombe across the Duddon Estuary in Cumberland, beyond the extreme western point of Lancashire. We have now swept the western plain, Northwards, immediately below us, stretches the wild high moorland of Anglesark, rising to 1100 feet above the sea, from which Liverpool has drawn its water for so many years. The reservoirs lie at our feet, flanked by the beautiful Lever Park with its ancient barns, its collection of animals, its model of Liverpool Castle, and other attractions. To the right rises the Tower of Darwin, and then the distant view is blocked by the high ground of the Rossendale anticline. The panorama from the pike, where a tower has stood for so many centuries, not only explains why it was used as a beacon in ancient times, but also helps to an understanding of the physical features of the county. Though these great hill masses, apparently as we have said, thrust westwards across the county, seem at first sight to be mere offshoots of the main Pennine system, they are probably much older than the Pennines. Briefly stated, the order of events would seem to be somewhat as follows. At the close of the Carboniferous period, that is, long after the furnace fells had been formed, some great strain or pressure raised the surface of Lancashire into the east and west folds of which we have been speaking, as though a great earth wave had been started in the north and rolled southwards, dying away when it had passed Bolton and Bury. The Permian rocks, not prominent in Lancashire, were then laid down. Next followed the gradual upheaval of the great Pennine Arch, 
separating the Yorkshire coalfield from that of Lancashire. The new red sandstone was afterwards deposited on the lower levels. We find no trace of other formations after this, till the ice sheet slid over the district in the glacial period, and shed its mantle of drift everywhere. If we now turn from the relief map to the geological chart of the county, much becomes clear. Eastwards, a broad ridge of millstone grit, lifted by the Pennine upheaval, and long since denuded of its covering of coal measures, thousands of feet thick, separates the coalfield of Yorkshire on the one side, from that of Lancashire on the other. All the evidence goes to show that these two coalfields were once continuous. The latter coalfield covers a great part of Lancashire south of the Ribble, over an area shaped somewhat like a spherical triangle, with its angles near Burnley, Prescott and Ashton respectively. Towards the southeastern corner stands the little lozenge-shaped Manchester coalfield, isolated like an island in a sea of drift-covered red sandstone. This red sandstone plain sweeping right around the southern and western sides of the Lancashire coalfield, extending to the sea, and reaching northwards almost as far as Lancaster. In the very middle of the coalfield the map shows two great masses of millstone grit to the north, respectively, of Bolton and Bury. These represent the Rossendale anticline to which we have already referred, the grit hills ranging themselves on either side of the band of coal measures that runs southwards through Turton and northward by Darwin. The wall of grit that we have seen flanking the coalfield on the east sweeps round it on the north also. Beyond this, the limestone of the Clitheroe and Boland districts comes to the surface as already explained, along the arches of the anticlines. Through this the Ribble and the Hodder carve their beautiful channels, the limestone being often shown in their bed. From the point where they meet, however, their combined stream, joined almost immediately by the Calder, cuts its way to the sea through grit and new red sandstone. North of the limestone of Boland, the grit appears once more in the moors around, and to the south-east of Lancaster. Above these we come upon the ring of limestone which almost encircles the English Lake District. We meet this same rock again when we have crossed the sands, and our train runs below the white limestone cliffs, golden with gorse, that fringe the Silurian fell country. Northwest of this Silurian area, the Coniston, Weatherlam, and Dunnerdale fells represent the volcanic rocks known as the Borrowdale series, which are very nearly, as we have seen, the oldest rocks in the world. Such are, in the barest outline, the principal features of what would be called the solid geology of Lancashire. From them it results that we find alternately represented there the characteristic scenery of a number of other English counties. Thus, the Paleozoic rocks of the north-west form part of the English Lake District and repeat the scenery of Cumberland. The limestone country of northern Lancashire reproduces for us some of the finest features of the Yorkshire Dale District, with which indeed it is continuous. In the millstone grit of the great anticlines, we recognise all the characteristics of the northern part of the Peak District of Derbyshire, while the red sandstone plain to the west and south merges itself at length in the rich plain of Cheshire, from which it is hardly distinguishable. The swelling moorlands and bold cliffs of the old red sandstone of Devonshire, where the land turns its billowy surface towards heaven like a many-breasted Diana, the intrusive masses of granite that have built the bolder features of Cornwall, the Ulitic escarpments of the Cotswolds, of Lincolnshire or of Whitby, 
the soft sheep-crop contours of the chalk formation of the downs or the chilterns the diversified scenery of the weald these are not represented in lancashire at all so far we have spoken of what is called the solid geology of lancashire spread over a great area of the county however in layers running in extreme cases to hundreds of feet in thickness and found on occasion as high as a thousand feet above sea level is the mantle of drift shed by the ice sheet of later geological times with which are associated the alluvial deposits left by the ever-changing rivers these two combined mask the solid geology and are responsible for some dreary elements in the scenery recent research has established one or two interesting points with regard to the glacial period as far as it affected the lancashire area in the first place the occurrence of marine shells in the sands and gravels is practically peculiar to the lancashire region then it has been shown mainly from the researches of mr jowett that while the ice sheet flowed up against the pennine barrier it did not cross it it did however block the valleys and so arrest the drainage the result was the formation of a number of glacial lakes the margins of these lakes and the channels by which eventually they cut their way out and overflowed have been discovered recently there was one for example in rossendale another to the north of rochdale in the latter case the high moors to the north intercepted the flow of ice southwards over rochdale but the ice sheet swept inwards from the west and then pressing northwards up the valleys choked and blocked them so that the arrested drainage formed lakes as there was no outlet for these lakes southwards they overflowed through the todmorden gap into yorkshire the boulders scattered over the county by the ice sheet have been identified as coming from the english lake district and from scotland very fine specimens of these have been set up in the public parks of lancashire a block of andesite weighing about twenty-five tons adorns the main quadrangle of the manchester university it was found beneath an adjoining street in the course of draining operations a much larger block estimated to weigh forty-five tons was met with in salford while excavations were proceeding for the docks and was left in situ the cliffs at blackpool show remarkable sections of the glacial drift and the boulders collected from these cliffs afford interesting evidence of the localities from which this detritus has been collected quite recently attempts have been made by several geologists to determine the pre-glacial contours by a comparison of the borings carried out during many years as for example in manchester we have still to refer to two physical features which are developed in lancashire to a remarkable degree along the whole length of the coast broad sands and undulating sand hills are seen to a greater extent than anywhere else in the country and these must by now have swallowed up large tracts of fertile land if their progress had not been checked by the planting of various grasses which have the power to bind and arrest them southport is built entirely upon blown sand which indeed reaches further inland than the town and rests to a large extent upon ancient peat mosses as an example of the rapid accumulation of sand it may be mentioned that between eighteen eighty four and nineteen o three a belt of dunes a hundred and fifty yards wide was formed outside the birkdale esplanade any obstacle indeed seems to lead to an accumulation and a sand hill in this district may rise as high as eighty feet above sea level a little further north in the broad ribble estuary the channels are said to change with every tide 
the course is marked by lights which are a feature of the view from Lytham and St Anne's. A safe course may be steered from the Nelson Boy, but many casualties have occurred through vessels coming from the south attempting to take a shortcut across the horse bank. The choking of the Ribble is largely due to detritus washed down by the river. It was in 1883 that powers were granted to the Preston Corporation to make excavations for a dock covering 40 acres. One of the features of the work was the great number of skulls of the Urus that were thrown out. The sands at Formby are three miles wide, yet these have been entirely laid down since the end of the 17th century, the old harbour having been silted up by a sandbank from which dry sand was blown over the land. Between Southport and Formby, a number of farms and houses have been completely buried during the last century. It's clear that here the land is gaining on the sea. Further north the reverse is the case, especially between the wire and the ribble. In the enormous area of sands comprised in Morecambe Bay and the estuaries above it, where the river channels are constantly changing, one movement more or less compensates the other. We come lastly to the other post-glacial deposits, the mosses for which Lancashire is so famous. One of them at any rate will always be associated with the story of the infancy of railways, and it is impossible to stand on the platform, say, of Astley Station today, and feel the pulsation of the ground as an express rushes by, showing that the railway really floats upon the moss as Stevenson intended that it should, without calling to mind his reiterated reply to the directors as they came to him week after week to discuss the question whether the work should be abandoned. We must persevere. Many of the mosses of Lancashire have been drained in modern times, or are in process of being reclaimed. This is true of Chat Moss itself, the most famous of all, which is gradually being converted into productive farms, or worked for peat for bedding, or for agricultural purposes. Apparently the peat here is not suitable for fuel. At the beginning of the 16th century, however, Chat Moss became so swollen that it burst and overflowed in the year 1526. We have some account of this event from the antiquary Leland, who, as we shall see in a later chapter, passed through Lancashire about ten years after the occurrence. He had occasion to visit Morley Hall on the borders of the moss. Chateley Moss, he says, six miles in length, burst up within a mile of Morley Hall, and destroyed much ground with moss thereabout, and destroyed much freshwater fish thereabout, first corrupting with stinking water Glazebrook, and so Glazebrook carried stinking water and moss into Mersey water, and Mersey corrupted, carried the rolling mass part to the shores of Wales, part to the Isle of Man, and some into Ireland. Leland mentions, incidentally, that the occupant of Morley Hall used turf only as fuel, that the moss, with breaking up of abundance of water in it, did much hurt to lands thereabout, with wandering moss and corrupt water, and that Sir John Holcroft's house, within a mile or more of Morley, stood in jeopardy with fleeting of the moss. A similar event is recorded as taking place at White Moss, north of Manchester. The mosses round Pilling, on the flats at the extreme south of Morecambe Bay, once covered an area of 25 square miles, so that it was said that God's grace and Pilling's moss were endless. The area has now been reclaimed. The same is true of the marsh that once covered a number of square miles on the southern side of the Ribble estuary, Martin Mere, round which so many Lancashire legends have gathered. 
during part of the year these great swamps may present a dreary and monotonous appearance though even in winter they are interesting for the birds that visit them then but those who watch them through the seasons those for example whose business takes them frequently across chat moss by the london and north western railway know that a time comes when they are white with the soft down of the cotton grass decked with the fresh green of the unfolding bracken or the bright emerald of the sphagnum when the birches the alders and the willows are hung with catkins and the hedges are white with hawthorn blossom while the moss is spangled with mayflowers the ditches are yellow with marigold and in the shady places the orchids are to be found then the twofold shout of the cuckoo is heard early and late the snipe bleats overhead the redshank sweeps by uttering its loud joyous whistle the curlew's bubbling call comes across the fields the white flash of the wheatear is seen in contrast with the turquoise blue of the kingfisher the warblers return and fill the air with sweet song and as night falls the corncrake and the goat-sucker prolong the music in the twilight later the heather will clothe the moss with sheets of amethyst and in the early autumn before the bracken has begun to turn i have seen from the train as we sped by the long straight ditches filled with the bloom of the greater willow herb giving the landscape the appearance of having been ruled with lines in crimson ink that is only a faint and very imperfect picture and even when all these glories are past and the trees are bare the winter rains fill up the pools and the flashes and then the herons come down to fish and the hawks are seen taking their toll of birds and the waters are alive with gulls and duck and other wild fowl till the season brings the flower again End of chapter two